I embarked on this idea of developing a ketogenic diet in a drug, which led me to develop ketone esters and ketone salts. The ketogenic diet is the only therapy that we know of that you can follow it for a period of time. It may be repairing and rewiring the brain and balancing brain neurochemistry and metabolism. We don't know if reducing fluctuations in glucose in non-diabetic people will have long-lasting benefit, but you get a hunch that it will. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so honored, so excited about today's episode. The concept of ketones, the ketogenic diet, ketosis... Obviously, that is a topic that I am thinking about all the time, especially with the Intermittent Fasting Podcast and with all of the work that I've done on this show. And who is the go-to authoritative figure on ketones but Dom Diagostino? It was honestly thrilling to bring him on the show. And on top of that, he is just one of the nicest, kindest human beings I don't know if we talk about this in the episode, but we actually had to troubleshoot for about an hour prior to recording because the connection wasn't working with his computer. So not only did he put up with that for an hour, but then he still continued to talk with me for almost two hours on all of these topics. I so enjoyed it. I got to finally ask all of those nitty gritty granular questions I have about ketones. I think you guys are really going to learn so, so much, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash domdiagostino. That's D-O-M-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then find the announcement post on Instagram on Fridays. Also comment there to again enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 10% back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, and they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dom D'Agostino. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I am here today, honestly, with a legend, especially a legend probably that a lot of my audience is very familiar with, especially with me hosting the Intermittent Fasting Podcast as well, and talking all the time about the ketogenic diet, ketones, metabolic flexibility, all of that. And I was actually thinking about this before we started recording. I think when people think ketones, probably the go-to source of information, I think, would be Dom D'Agostino. So (laughs) it is no surprise that ever since I started this show a few years ago, he was at the top of my list of somebody to interview. So this is really a surreal moment right now. And it's actually kind of funny. I don't know if you remember this, Dom, but I've been like trying to find my way to you. So I've been (laughs) like asking all different people for an intro. And I think two people the same day emailed you almost the exact same email connecting you or... (laughs) like offering to connect you to me, which was yeah. funny. <laughs> but, I, yeah. I, I, Kirk Parsley and I, I forget who else. Brad maybe. Kearns. 
Oh, Brad Kearns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did his podcast recently. Yep. It's yeah, funny. Two it's, great guys that I know. Yep. Yeah, it was just funny because I'd been asking Kirk for a while, and then I asked Brad, and Kirk just happened to do it like the same day that Brad did. So you got hit with <laughs> with all the emails. But in any case, for listeners who are not familiar, Dom Diagosino, he's an associate professor with tenure at the University of South Florida, and he teaches students of the Marsani College of Medicine and the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. And he focuses on an array of really incredible topics like neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, neuroscience, and neuropharmacology. That should be a test for like young kids learning how to read and pronounce things. He is also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, and he has a lab where he just does a myriad of incredible things that I'm sure we will talk about. And this was super cool. You are a research investigator and crew member on NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operation. Where was that? Yeah. So the NEMO, NASA loves these acronyms, right? So in <laughs> NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operation is a space analog research project that they use for training astronauts. And it's uh, in the Aquarius habitat, which is off the coast. It's it's in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and it's off uh, Isla Mirada. You have to a boat ride about an hour out and then then you go underwater and then the habitat is actually it's hyperbaric so it's at the same barometric pressure as the water you're down under <laughs> so you stay in a in a hyperbaric environment and you live in what's called saturation and it's you know it's an extreme environment it takes takes like 17 hours for us to come back up from that level of pressure so yeah it's off the coast <laughs> it's, it's the aquarius habitat if you google that and nasa uses that habitat for for training and they also use the neutral buoyancy lab at nasa in houston to train astronauts underwater because it simulates neutral buoyancy how long are you at that pressure my mission was the nemo 22 mission and we were underwater for 10 days and oh. we have to do a variety of different you know, tasks that NASA has in regards to your testing different types of equipment, different procedures. You know, I did a lot of medical testing, microbiome changes and things like that, skin microbiome, blood measurements, oh. things like that. So, And then my wife actually was on NEMO 23, which was an all-female crew. Her commander was Samantha Cristoforetti. And Jessica Watson, who will actually be going up to space station and doing a launch in April, along with my commander, Shell Lindgren, who was a medical doctor and astronaut. He was my commander for for that. So it's it's weird. It's like the whole Nemo crew is like reuniting and they're going to space. We're staying on wow. the ground because my wife and I are just scientists and we assist with the project and organizing the research on the project. And we became the crew members too. You become aquanauts when you stay underwater for more than 24 hours. So we officially An became aquanaut. That is so, so cool. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. Actually, it's a parallel question for the ketogenic diet related to that. So 10 days at that hyperbaric pressure, the findings that you find, because normally when people are doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, or pressure chambers, <laughs> I'm not using the right terminology. Normally when they're doing that, they're That's doing right. sessions, more acute sessions. Mm -hmm. So the findings that you get doing an elongated session, do they apply to the benefits that you can get from acute sessions or do things happen at a longer session that you can only get if you're doing a longer session? 
with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you get inside a chamber. And if it's a monoplace chamber, the chamber is flushed with the air, which is 20% oxygen, is flushed with 100% oxygen. And then that's pressurized typically to like, you know, above 1.5 atmospheres to two and then up to three atmospheres maximum. And then you usually, you know, sustain that for about an hour or so, maybe maybe 90 minutes or depending on the pressure. And, and then you do that if it's for wound healing, for example, which is like an FDA approved application, probably one of the most common applications. You do that for like five days a week. And then if you're recreational diving and you have things like decompression sickness, then you would just do like, you know, one exposure. But the Aquarius habitat, you're breathing hyperbaric air you're at about just about three atmospheres and what you're breathing is the air there's like air that's that's pumped down into the habitat and that air is at it is at you know we're at like 60 depending on 60 to 90 feet of seawater depending on what where we're if we're doing the mission outside or inside the habitat but hyperbaric air is, you know, not as high concentration as hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but you still oh. have that pressure. So your body is saturated with nitrogen and you li- you're living in something called saturation, which means it takes a long time to decompress to get to the top. It's easier. My commander at the time, actually, before we decompressed, he tweeted, it took longer for him. It, it, it only took like five hours to get from the International Space Station back down the ground, but it took 17 hours to get from this extreme environment to the surface. Oh, wow. Because you have to do a, what's called the stage decompression, like overnight in this habitat to get back up to the top. Or if you were to just shoot up to the top after the end of the mission, what would happen? Your, your blood would boil and you would like have a freaky, painful death <laughs> uh, from something called decompression sickness. So the the nitrogen would want to come out of solution and then that would get into your blood vessels. It would cause embolisms in your brain and your heart and your pulmonary system and you would die. So you you have to do a very, a very calculated stage decompression where the first hour of the decompression, you pre-breathe oxygen to help with the denitrogenation. And astronauts actually do an oxygen pre-breathe before they do a spacewalk. A spacewalk is when they come out of the International Space Station or whatever ship they're on. And then, you know, they'll work in space wearing a suit. And But the suit is only pressurized to a quarter of an atmosphere. So what they'll do typically, and the astronaut, astronaut Mike Gernhardt, who, who I know actually worked on this protocol, they get on a bike and they breathe oxygen and that helps them get more nitrogen out of their system. And then they suit up into the spacesuit and then they go outside of the space station <laughs> into space and do what's called the spacewalk. And but but that oxygen pre-breathe is serves the same function. It helps to denitrogenate denitrogenate the body so you don't get decompression sickness or the bends. Did you experience any side effects from any of it? No, I didn't. And part of the reason I stayed in a deep state of ketosis where my ketones were like elevated above my glucose almost for the entire mission. And I took like saliva, I took urine samples to look at my neurotransmitters. I took tons of blood work to see how that environment changed me. Also wore the aura ring which oh, yeah. sponsored it. Yeah. And so all the crew members, the astronauts, they had, they're wearing the aura ring 
And I also wore the Polar V800 to get like deep heart rate variability, which is a little more complex than the Aura Ring, but it was good to compare that. And it basically validated Aura as like a great device for heart rate variability. And yeah, we did tons of other measurements. We looked at psychological measurements and microbiome and skin microbiome and all these different things. But yeah, the extreme environment, a lot of the research that I do is actually creating a state of ketosis, whether dietary or supplemental, to preserve performance resilience in, in environments where to make to make it more safe to operate in that environment and also increase your performance, whether that be cognitive and physical performance. Which I have so many questions about. So this is sure. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity on that mission, were you just following a dietary approach to achieve that ketogenic state or were you supplementing with exogenous ketones or what were you doing? I did both. So they have like this astronaut food type things. This is like camping food that you can mix. So the the crew, the rest of the crew was the idea was to like get, see what happens to our bodies in extreme environment, eating what we normally eat. Mm. So the crew basically gets to pick from an array of foods, you know, aligned with what they typically eat. But I was following a ketogenic diet. So when I was in this, actually, it was probably a little bit more ketogenic than normal. And I was eating a lot of sardines or no, I couldn't bring sardines. That's right. I wasn't allowed to bring sardines because of the smell actually. So I brought <laughs> chicken. I know it was like funny. I, I had funny. the list of things and they contacted me and they're like, like no, I can't bring sardines. Can't. And I was like, why? It was like an email back and forth. I was like, okay, can you explain why I can't bring sardines? So apparently, you know, the smell could be kind of in the, in that particular undersea mm-hmm. habitat the smells are amplified. Mm. So yeah, I had a lot of chicken and olive oil and coconut oil. And I brought ketone supplements down with me and I would consume the ketone supplements, for example, like before the oxygen pre-breathe, because we actually study CNS oxygen toxicity, which when you're in ketosis, it protects against that. And we've published quite a bit in that area. And I would take the ketones before I did what was called an EVA. An EVA is extravehicular activity where you go outside of the habitat. In the habitat, you're dry, but you're pressurized. And then with an EVA, you suit up and then you work in the water outside that habitat and for hours on end. So you, and you, and you can sometimes you go down deeper too. So you're at a higher pressure and you're also under a very, you're very task loaded cognitively. And then you're also, there's pretty high physical demands too, because you have to pull a cart and you have to like drill into the ground and get samples of coral and, and build these coral. I remember a big project was the coral reef foundation where you would get samples of coral and then bring it back and do like genetic analysis. But then you also, you, you basically make these coral trees to propagate certain types of coral that are endangered. I think Sidorastria was one of them. There's a few different types of coral that we were working with. That is so cool. Were you the only one doing a keto diet? Yeah, the other, everybody else was pretty interested and there are astronauts that I communicate with that, you know, follow a low carb ketogenic approach, even on the station. But for me, I was the only one doing that. And the idea was to get baseline data. It's like, what does, because we had a whole bunch of experiments, you know, what does this extreme environment do to our physiology? And then in other crews that we're planning or other experiments, we can, we can do an intervention like change a dietary parameter, you know, lower ketones and or lower carbohydrates and elevate, you know, ketone levels and things like that. 
but I got I got a lot of data and some of it we've published and we've got a couple other manuscripts we're working on. One other question, just to get my audience more familiar with your work and for me personally, I'm super curious. What made you interested in this whole world of the ketogenic diet and ketones and what you're doing today? Was it like an epiphany one day or? I did my PhD in neuroscience and physiology. And then my postdoctoral fellowship was funded by the Office of Navy Research. And they were essentially funding me to develop technologies to understand oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for Navy SEAL divers that use a closed circuit rebreather under like stealth operations, right? So the advantage of these rebreathers is that there's no bubbles when you're swimming, but the disadvantage is that that it's it's high oxygen because it's closed circuit and almost pure oxygen. So we knew that if you go down more than 50 feet for even like 10 minutes, you're have you could potentially have a seizure. So we wanted to develop and understand how to predict these seizures and how to prevent them. And in the process of doing that, I was very interested in different antioxidants and combining like even like melatonin. I did some studies on melatonin, which is actually a pretty, really good antioxidant, has some interesting effects and and other more, you know, antioxidants we use. And they tend to work good in like in, in, in the lab, but in practice, they don't seem to have good anti-seizure effects. And then there's anti-seizure drugs, but then they can dull your senses and make you sedated. So I didn't, you don't want to load up a warfighter with you know, anti-seizure drugs. So discovered that the ketogenic diet was actually used when drugs fail. So I became interested in implementing a high-fat ketogenic diet. But the military did not like the idea of giving a Navy SEAL a diet that was like 80, 90% fat. So then I embarked on this idea of developing a ketogenic diet in a drug, which led me to develop ketone esters and ketone salts. And now, I mean, we have like dozens of different molecules that we're kind of playing around with to formulate the optimal therapeutic ketosis approach. And different ketogenic strategies can be employed for different scenarios, whether it be, you know, anti-cancer effects or anti-seizure effects or neuroprotective effects or blood glucose lowering effects. So there's, there's different approaches for that. So speaking to the the seizures and the drugs to normally to treat it and all of that, I was reading your book, The Origin and Future of the Ketogenic Diet that we're talking about before yeah. we were recording with Travis Christofferson. And it was really upsetting to read, and not the whole book, but the concept that you discussed about how, you know, how these anti-seizure drugs typically worked and their success rate compared to the ketogenic diet success rate. But basically, the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies kind of, you know, they're not going to really suggest the ketogenic diet because there's not funding behind it. There's not a pharmaceutical motive there. And then on top of that, they say that it's, you know, hard to follow. So they're kind of making the choice for, especially like parents with kids with epilepsy, they're making the choice for them that the keto diet is not really an option because compliance is too difficult when the success rate is, I mean, looks like way, way better than those drugs. Yeah. And 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 actually works in like 70% of the patients where all where multiple drugs have failed in combination. So it's it's working through a mechanism that's independent of any particular drug. It's interesting because there's it's pleiotrophic, we say it's the ketogenic diet is working 
synergistically, it's like many different mechanisms working synergistically together to enhance your brain function, balance your neurotransmitters, and really protect you from seizures. And the etiology of epilepsy and many seizure disorders is largely unknown. And the ketogenic diet works remarkably well for controlling seizures from a broad array of etiologies, you know, or, or causes. Like it could be temporal lobe epilepsy, it could be absent seizures, it could be epilepsy or seizures from metabolic disorders like glucose transporter deficiency or PDH deficiency. And there's genetic disorders where there's a persistent genetic problem, but the ketogenic diet works even in the presence of a persistent genetic pathology, which is very interesting. So you're not like correcting the, the gene, although we are looking at epigenetic changes. By following the diet, it changes your metabolic physiology, which changes your brain neuropharmacology and, and changes neurotransmitter systems that can then you know, then it has an anti-seizure effect. And we don't know all the reasons why it has such a profound anti-seizure effect, but that's a lot of what we're doing in the lab now is investigating that. Yeah, that actually speaks to a question I had, which was a more general question, but it's what you were just talking about because the ketogenic diet is linked to so many different health benefits with an array of issues. So not just seizures. In general, is it mostly the benefits from the ketones, from the ketone signaling, from the low carb aspect of what you're cutting out, the weight loss on a ketogenic diet? Like, is there one thing that's more than the other or is it just a myriad of things? And is there a, um, for each different disease, is, like, is it a similar effect for all the different conditions or are some things, it's a the specific aspect of the ketogenic diet or ketones that are creating that health benefit? Such a good question. You know, this has been the topic of, you know, workshops and seminars at the American Epilepsy Society, which is largely a, a, a huge event with thousands, tens of thousands of people, mostly sponsored by drug companies, right? But, but they have, within the American Epilepsy Society conference, they have the special interest group on dietary therapies, which is the ketogenic diet. They don't even like to use the word ketogenic diet. They call mm. it, you know, special interest group on dietary therapies. But within that, all the experts come and we discuss this. And in some cases, it does appear that the seizure control correlates with the level of ketosis. But you can also say that that seizure control that that the level of ketosis also correlates with decreased glucose availability, the level of ketosis will be inversely correlated with insulin. So the lower we suppress the hormone insulin, the more our body is in fat burning mode. And as the liver burns tons of fat, then we make more ketones from that fat. But there's certain disorders like glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome, where the glucose literally can't get across the blood brain barrier. So when a child has this disorder, they could be relatively catatonic and not be able to get up and move at all. But when they enter a state of ketosis, it's like it fires the brain back up again and they, they, they become aware, they become alert, and they can regain function again. So the ketones function as an alternative energy substrate because the glucose cannot literally cross the blood-brain barrier because the GLUT1 receptor is deficient in that. So that would be a case where ketones definitely matter. Mm -hmm. And then there's other disorders 
that are being studied, like absence seizures and even like autism, things like that, where something called a low glycemic index diet, which is like, you know, high fat, moderate protein and low carb, but not low enough in carbohydrates to really produce high levels of ketones. There's just like just a moderate level of ketosis. And then this has anti-seizure effects too, not as much as a classical ketogenic diet, but What's interesting and established is that it, it's been shown that people can have seizure control with a lower carb diet that that's not necessarily ketogenic. So that's kind of interesting too, you know, in that it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, highly ketogenic to have anti-seizure effects for some disorders, whereas other disorders, you really need to get the ketone levels up high to control the seizures. Would whether or not somebody with epilepsy who goes on a ketogenic diet and then goes off and, you know, is okay, like they don't have to go back on it versus those who the seizures come back, would that be indicating, I guess, if it's a different type of seizure or a different root cause? Like, are there multiple root causes for seizures? There are, yeah. You know, Charlie Abrams is probably a really good example. His father, Jim Abrams, the Hollywood producer who made the movie Airplane and Naked Gun, he actually, that story inspired me to study the ketogenic diet and actually look at it. When I I saw the movie First Do No Harm with Meryl Streep. So Meryl Streep did a movie about the ketogenic diet, which is kind of interesting. And I saw it in 2008. And as a scientist, I was unaware of that the diet was used for seizures. I just thought it was like in the fitness and bodybuilding circles, you know, people talked about the keto diet, but I didn't, I didn't even know. I went through a nutrition program at at Rutgers University and we did not even really talk about the ketogenic diet as a medical therapy. But Charlie, Jim Abrams found the ketogenic diet by going to the library and got Charlie administered at Johns Hopkins where he got off all his medication was which had horrible side effects. And Charlie was put on a very calculated ketogenic diet, four to one ratio, which is like 88 to 90% fat. And then his seizures were controlled. He followed the diet for a couple of years and then weaned off of the diet and never got seizures again. So the ketogenic diet is the only therapy that we know of that you can follow it for a period of time and you're able to wean the patient off of the diet over a particular time in some patients, and then the seizures never come back. So whereas if you stop drug therapy, then you have a rebound effect and you have more seizures. So the ketogenic diet, what that was telling me is that when you follow the diet, it may be repairing and rewiring the brain and balancing brain neurochemistry and metabolism in a way that's actually fixing the brain and curing epilepsy. And then you could come, and it seemed pretty far-fetched, but that's what the literature was suggesting. And that's you know, the researchers at Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic and Duke and other places show these are called super responders. Not everybody's like that, but about, I think about anywhere between 10 to 20 percent, around like 15 percent may have are what considered as super responders, which means they have rapid seizure control and they adhere to the diet and then it, they, it never comes back. They're able to manage it with the diet and then gradually wean off the diet and then the seizures never come back. So another question, because you were talking about, you know, people in moderate levels of ketosis and potentially seeing benefits. So there's definitely this idea, I mean, definitely with me being the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, a lot of the questions we get, there's this idea that you're in ketosis or you're not, like it's an on and off switch. Is it an on and off switch or is it more like a dimmer? Yeah, it is like a 
dimmer rheostat or whatever <laughs> you're thinking like in far as electronics yeah it, it's a spectrum right so which is largely a result of the carbohydrate restriction so as we dial and for our current clinical trial where we're using continuous glucose monitoring with the levels health app what we do with patients who are non-diabetic we put cgms on them and we measure a whole bunch of parameters including psychological you know depression we look at anxiety and things like that and how that changes in addition to lots of blood work and then you titrate the carbohydrates down over about four weeks and we find we have better compliance, better adherence, and then people are just not, and also less side effects. Because if you rapidly induce someone into, into ketosis with, you know, if they're on a low fat diet and they go to eating like 70, 80% fat, that can, that can cause some side effects from fat intolerance. So a gradual approach, just reducing carbohydrates from like two, 300 grams a day, which is like kind of normal for the standard American diet down to 100 per day produces a really nice effect on glucose and insulin and you become more metabolically flexible you know that defined as being able to use all fuel sources you know fat ketones glucose and you know and that as you become more fat adapted it's easier to transition someone from a lower carb diet into a state of ketosis, like nutritional ketosis, where you have pretty profound suppression of the hormone insulin, your glycemic variability. If you look at a, your continuous glucose monitor trace throughout the day, it's essentially flat, much, much different than what you get with a standard American diet. And, you know, we don't know if reducing fluctuations in glucose in non-diabetic people will have long-lasting benefits if you do this all the time, but you get a hunch that it will. Because if you look at the data for type 2 diabetics and type 1 diabetics, the wild postprandial glycemic excursions, if you want to call that, are directly correlated with like longevity, right? It's like the more you're, you have these wild glucose fluctuations, highs and lows, you know, to, it can go too low if you're type 1 diabetic, especially if you're administering insulin, then that becomes a problem. So we're of the opinion that if you can manage your blood glucose within certain parameters, you're also managing insulin and you're optimizing your metabolic health. And that's going to pay big dividends, you know, as we age and we're decreasing inflammation, we're decreasing glycation, we're improving a whole host of metabolic biomarkers that are tightly coupled with, you know, healthy aging and, and health span. But the data is not, you, there's not a whole lot of data using these continuous glucose monitoring devices in non-diabetics. So that's, I'm pretty heavily involved in that research now. I love CGMs and we talk about it all the time on the shows and yes, so I'm definitely team CGM. What are your thoughts on people who are doing ketogenic diets, but they don't experience the swings as much, but they experience higher resting blood sugar levels than they might be otherwise? We don't see this that much with our current group of people, our current cohort, I think because we're transitioning them. And I think that might, it might be helpful to transition them, might, might views of that have changed a little bit. I think it, definitely for compliance and, and people do get side effects when they follow ketogenic diet. So I'm of the opinion now, if you're not doing it for epilepsy, of course, where you need to get rapid seizure control to kind of ease into it more. My thoughts about that have, have changed. So the dawn effect and the dawn effect is sort of 
when towards in the morning before we wake up, and especially as like as soon as we wake up, we get a pulse of cortisol, which usually peaks in the morning. And the body is wants to be primed for, you know, the taking on the day, whether that be physical or cognitive tasks. And it's a bit of a stress response, you know, when you wake up. So glucagon, which is the counter-regulatory hormone of insulin, can be elevated and cortisol is higher also in the morning. And that can contribute to glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen for glucose in the liver. So we, we tend to see in some people, especially if they've eaten like a lot of food at night or carbs at night, and they have maybe higher glycogen stores in the liver, they'll have this, this sort of spiking. And in, in some people, it's higher. And in other people, they don't see it as much. But I would say about more than 50% of people do see a morning elevation in glucose, but it typically will taper off during the course of the day. I mean, I've been looking at dozens, if not hundreds of CGM traces, and I, and I do see this, this elevation of a baseline insulin in the morning or baseline glucose rather in the morning, but the insulin levels go down. So if your insulin levels are down, then the insulin helps to facilitate glucose disposal, right? And if your insulin levels are suppressed, you know, more of that glucose may, may float around in circulation, mm. but it's still within sort of physiological ranges. You know, it's typically not, I think the important thing is like, like it, you want to look at it over the course of the whole day, <laughs> you know, and generally speaking, if you look at average glucose levels on a ketogenic diet, it goes down or hemoglobin A1C will go down. Surprise, glucose does not go to zero because we have all these counter-regulatory mechanisms to maintain homeostatic mechanisms to maintain blood glucose. And some tissues and cells like the red blood cells need glucose. So we have, and then we can make glucose from the glycerol backbone of triglycerides and, and some amino acids can make glucose too. So glucose levels, unless we really restrict total calories or we do things like intermittent fasting and that can bring it down, you know, over time, glucose levels don't change a whole lot on a eucaloric ketogenic diet. And in some people, they may trend up in the beginning, but they will typically, if you have someone who's type 2 diabetic and hyperglycemia, those it typically comes down. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So it may be a case where, especially with people not having as much access to things like CGMs until now, where this idea that the higher resting blood sugar is happening on ketogenic diets might be more that people historically on keto diets were doing a finger prick you know, just getting a snapshot a few times yeah. a day rather than getting the whole picture. Yeah. For our current like cohort, what we encourage, and we just had another meeting about this and I talked to a bunch of investigators doing, you know, low carb QGENC diet studies. They have them measure glucose before dinner, like later in yes. the day, okay. in kind of a semi-fasted state before dinner. And then that's kind of a better way to go about doing More it. telling. Yeah. The thing is yeah, to measure it you know, at the same time every day and multiple times throughout the day, I think it's going to be important, you know, because these, these things change like triglycerides fluctuate throughout the day, hormones fluctuate throughout the day. If your glucose bumps up a little bit high in the morning, if you start a ketogenic diet, it might be lower in the afternoon as it was with me. Like I'm usually like in the sixties in the afternoon, like low seventies and sixties throughout most of the day in the afternoon after 12. Have you done any um, studies on cryotherapy and how it affects blood sugar and ketones? I used the hot tub at home. I finally got my hot tub. We have this like old ancient like pool uh, concrete structure and I, I got the hot tub and I tweaked it so it goes higher than normal instead of 104, which oh, is nice. like 110. <laughs> so I do heat therapy and I notice my CGM gets a big spike, but the sensor in the CGM, if you heat it up, it's going to give you okay. a positive effect. And then I jump into the pool water, which is pretty cold, and I, and I go back and forth. And I notice when I jump in the water, I wear a Dexcom and I can't turn the alarm off. The, thing, the alarm goes off like crazy all the time. When I go in the pool and I come out, the thing's beeping like crazy every single time. So I think that's more of a sensor anomaly because if I prick my finger and check, I do have lower glucose when I switch back and forth. So you're specifically talking about cryotherapy. So going in cold water kind of does the same thing because it's bringing your core temperature down too. And if I do heat therapy and I bring my core temperature up, the nice effect I see from that is that it lowers my blood pressure when I get out. I've been doing a lot of blood pressure measurements. But the cold therapy will stimulate what's called your catecholamines, like your dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and by stimulating catecholamines, you do two things. You're facilitating more fat burning effect. You know, adrenaline will liberate fat from adipose, so you'll burn more fat. But you will also, you might increase your glucose levels because adrenaline will stimulate glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of, of glycogen for glucose. So as a stress response, you might see that. That was the reason I was asking because we were talking about spikes and then mm -hmm. I do cryotherapy almost every day. I did some before this actually. And when I'm wearing a CGM, 
it spikes so high. I didn't know if it was actually from the cryo or if it was from the sensor freaking out. But after it would go down and then ultimately go to lower levels than pre-cryo mm-hmm. and stay mm-hmm. lower throughout the rest of the day. So, Yeah, it could be just your sympathetic nervous system activation from the cryo, depending on how how low that is. But the sensor does, you can, the sensors operate within a particular range, temperature range. Mm -hmm. So to test that, you could just prick your finger and use something like an Abbott Precision Extra or the Keto Mojo device, and then measure your blood glucose and ketones too, and see blood glucose to see, to check your sensor. So when when I put the sensor on, it's always running high relative to my finger prick device. So Mm -hmm. then I usually have to calibrate it, but then I I calibrate it. So it's about five points over. I have to bring it down because usually like 10 or 15 points high relative to my finger prick device for me, but I usually calibrate it. So it runs a little bit high. So I'm not getting these alarms all the time for low Mm. glucose, which happens quite often. If you, Oh, that would make sense. That's (laughs) smart. (laughs) That's funny. Okay. So stepping back a little for a bigger picture of I love the question why, and I have a lot of why questions about why the body does ketosis and creates ketones. And one of the biggest epiphanies I had recently, and you can tell me if I'm correct with this, but people often think that the reason the body enters ketosis is because we run out of glucose. So we we don't have energy because we don't have glucose. So we have to make ketones basically that we need to access our fat. And so that's why we create ketones. But my newer understanding is that we're always probably burning fat with carbs in the Krebs cycle. And the reason we enter ketosis isn't because when we run out of carbs, isn't because we don't have carbs to burn. It's because we can no longer burn fat because we don't have carbs to burn fat. Is that correct? Because that that was like a mind blown moment for me. Well, biochemically, what happens is you are, the simplest way to explain it is that when you enter a state of ketosis, whether it be fasting ketosis or the ketogenic diet, the beta oxidation of fats are so high in the liver, you accumulate acetyl-CoA. And the accumulation of acetyl-CoA gets directed into the path of ketogenesis, where two acetyl-CoA molecules will condense enzymatically to what's called acetoacetate, and that's a ketone body. And then through another enzyme, the acetoacetate can convert to beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is another ketone. And then they both enter circulation and in the blood, it's in about a three to one, three to one or four to one ratio of beta-hydroxybutyrate to acetoacetate. But the reason that happens that your body makes ketones is it's, well, to preserve energy flow to the brain. That's probably the evolutionary reason why. But biochemically, what happens is that the level of beta oxidation of fatty acids in the liver is so high, you got to do something with the acetyl-CoA and the Krebs cycle gets a bit backed up. And and the acetyl-CoA then gets condensed and forms, goes down the ketogenesis path. And that's almost entirely dependent upon the suppression of the hormone insulin. So if you were to get even just a little bit of sugar or anything that increases insulin, insulin can quickly, insulin's a storage hormone and you go quickly from a catabolic state, fat catabolic state primarily to an anabolic state. 
And so if, if you're fasting, for example, and you, you're in a high state of ketosis and you inject the hormone insulin, it kind of can cause a dangerous scenario where your, your ketones will start to come down after a period of time. You probably be protected from the hypoglycemia, and that has been shown in some early work. But that production of ketones is primarily a result of the, the lowering of the hormone insulin. And that stimulates your fat burning so much. <laughs> so ketones are a really good indicator that you are burning fat. So in that case, you know, Atkins was right. Like, you know, you, you get your ketones elevated and you, and you know, your, your body is in a fat burning state. You can't make ketones without burning excess fat. That's, that's a statement that no metabolic physiologist would argue with. So to clarify, so the acetyl-CoA building up in the liver is coming from fat stores on our body or our diet? Yes. Yep. Our, when we fast or we go into a state of ketosis, whether it be diet or fasting, then you're, you're getting fatty acids to the liver, you know, through, through your adipose. You're, you're, you activate, for example, if your sympathetic nervous system is activated, it can activate hormone-sensitive lipase, and then the adipose tissue or like cells that that contain the fat, right? And then you're liberating the fatty acids, the triglycerides and fatty acids from your system. And these fats go in circulation, and the fats are an amazing source of fuel for skeletal muscle. The heart preferentially burns fat for energy. The liver, you know, relies on fat for energy. Many organ systems do. But the long-chain fatty acids that are typically dietary and the fats that are stored in adipose do not readily cross the blood-brain barrier. So what happens is that these long-chain fats are broken down through a process called beta-oxidation and to their constituent molecule, which ultimately is acetyl-CoA. And then the acetyl-CoA is a breakdown product of, of fat, which is occurring at a very high rate in the liver. The liver is chock full of mitochondria and there's just like massive fat oxidation in the liver. Interestingly, the liver cannot use ketones as an energy source. So the, the ketones that are produced in the liver get spilled into circulation and then they become fuel, most importantly for the central nervous system, but also the heart. So if a person was actually starving and did not have excess body fat, would they stop being ketogenic because they won't have the fat to create the ketones? I guess then they won't have any fuel, but like, would there be a level where they're just burning the fat to run their metabolism and they wouldn't actually go through the ketogenic process? There is, you know, even a lean person has a really high amount of energy stored as fat. Like, I mean, you have to get towards, you know, contest bodybuilder, which is becomes dangerous when you're tapping into your essential fat, right? You get down to like two or 3%, which is extremely rare, you know, only in starvation effects do we see that or people who are manipulating it chronically to achieve certain body composition alterations associated with, you know, bodybuilding or, and, and the use of bodybuilding drugs and stuff too, to achieve that. So it's unlikely that you'll ever, you know, lower your body fat so low that body fat won't be available <laughs> to, to make ketones. So it becomes really rare. I mean, it, it happens in extreme athletics and things like that, but it's for the normal person for 99.9% .9 of the population that that's not going to happen. We do have a variety of, you know, people have 
there's different disorders where you can enter a state of ketosis. So some people are better than others. There's like, I think like 30 different enzymes associated with beta oxidation of fatty acids and ketogenesis. There's beta oxidation defects where if someone fasts, they literally can't make ketones and then they can go into a seizure. There's carnitine deficiency syndrome, CPT1, CPT2. There's medium chain acid deficiency syndrome, which is called MCHAD. Then there's LCHAD and SCHAD, which is long chain fat. There's a lot of different metabolic disorders that you know we teach. And, and, and there's various disorders where there are contraindications where people would not want to do a ketogenic diet. It can actually be deadly with someone with CPT1 or carnitine deficiency or something like that, or even beta oxidation defects. So they have to be on a high carb diet. These are rare disorders, but it happens. And I think it's also on a spectrum. Like we may have some SNPs where we may not make as much, you know, certain fatty acid oxidation enzymes as the next person. And that that's that could be the person who just does not feel well on a ketogenic diet. And then there's a variety of different, you know, enzymes too that are associated with the ketogenesis process. And and some people can quickly get their ketones elevated and other people just cannot seem to get their ketones elevated as high. And that could be a consequence of the body's just using the ketones for fuel. So they're cleared from the blood and they're not really picking it up, but you know, you could have like thiolase deficiency, which is one of the ketogenesis enzymes. It's, you know, that's a potential disorder contributing that. But these are kind of rare or they're thought of as being rare. But I do believe that people have, you know, it kind of like it's not an on or off thing. I think we have varying levels of these. and But I do think we can train our metabolism to be a better fat metabolizer, a better ketone producer and a better ketone utilizer simply by putting our body into a state of high fat oxidation and ketosis is actually changing the transporters where the monocarboxylic acid transporters, which gets the ketones across blood brain barrier, across cell membranes and across mitochondrial membranes. We're stimulating in an, even an epigenetic way, the, the production of ketolytic enzymes, the enzymes responsible of basically converting ketones into our, our energy currency, ATP. So we can, we can do that. So, so when we, when we, when we just dial back the carbohydrates, that's actually increasing our fat oxidation. And then when we, we become ketogenic, then a whole slew of metabolic processes occur, including the increased production of, of proteins that actually become, you know, transporters and, and ketolytic enzymes can be elevated. So this is all, I'm kind of referencing animal studies, but we're, that's why, you know, studies are ongoing now taking muscle biopsies and there might be, the adaptation may be different in some people and it might be different in the liver. It might be different in the calf muscle versus like, you know, the bicep or the lat or something, there's probably tissue specific alterations that occur, that occur too, that we need to appreciate. What do you think are the implications of, is it the Inuit that actually, don't they have a genetic predisposition to not enter ketosis despite being on a low carb, high fat diet? There's different genetic predispositions for some people that essentially what happens is that they're very good at gluconeogenesis, so they can convert more gluconeogenic amino acids like alanine into glucose. And I don't know if someone has done really a comprehensive study 
to show that. And the Inuit are basically carnivores, but eating whale blubber and seal fat and things like that. And it's pretty close to a ketogenic diet, but probably not even as high as in fat as a classical ketogenic diet. But yeah, I think they they have evolved to basically convert protein and maybe even the glycerol backbone of triglycerides into more glucose. And they become insulin resistant if you if you put them on higher carbohydrate diets. So they have a, just as American Indians do, you know, they have a predisposition for type 2 diabetes. I brought that up because I've heard that used as an argument to say our bodies don't want to be in long-term ketosis. Because if you look at like this population that historically would have been on a long-term keto diet, they adapted genetically to not do that. Yeah. So basically I've just heard that argument. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I would argue that they'd still be, yeah, still be in a mild state of ketosis. And, you know, even, you know, in, in, from the ketogenic diet literature, even the people who study it that are big advocates for the ketogenic diet will say that a medical ketogenic diet is not natural and it's not a healthy diet. Like they will say that right up front, like the leaders at Johns Hopkins, for example, Dr. Eric Kossoff and, and Mackenzie Cervenka, you know, they, that's, I think a quote out of their book, but at the same time, that diet is optimal and super healthy for someone with epilepsy, right? Because it's controlling that condition without drugs. And then now there's modified variants, which the Hopkins crew has really spearheaded the modified ketogenic diet, which has more protein and allows for more fiber and a little more liberal with carbohydrates and things like that. And, you know, you have the spectrum of ketogenic diets would be the five to one ketogenic diet, which is like over 90% fat to the modified Atkins diet or the low glycemic index diet, which is a one to one ratio. One being in grams fat and the other one would be in grams protein and carbohydrates and if you work out the ratios it's like you know like 60 70 percent fat or something like that but it just allows for more fibrous carbohydrates and more, more liberal with protein so i would argue that you know a ketogenic diet that was used clinically the classical ketogenic diet is really so high in fat i don't very few you know, only very limited geographic regions would would people follow a diet that was truly ketogenic. So chronic ketosis is probably not ideal when when you're following like a medical ketogenic diet. It might not be optimal. And I guess the question is, is it healthy? You know, if we look at the community of patients that had to follow it, like glucose transporter deficiency. And then there's also people with epilepsy who have been on it for up to three decades, their blood work and their like carotid arteries and everything look fine and they look great. So you would think that, you know, we demonize saturated fat and high fat diets and stuff. And there's very few people that are, that don't have epilepsy that follow the ketogenic, but there are people that truly follow a medical ketogenic diet, which is extremely high in fat, and they've been following it for decades, and their blood work looks remarkably great. <laughs> so one could argue that, that that's pretty good. There is a couple studies actually that shows the distensibility of the arterioles are a little bit reduced in some kids 
that follow the ketogenic diet. And then when they get off the ketogenic diet, that distensibility comes back. So, you know, I think that's kind of, people will point to that data, but I think it's kind of weak. Also, some of the earlier studies with the ketogenic diet in kids showed their triglycerides go up really high in LDL. But these early diets were basically like hydrogenated soybean oil mixed with like casein. And, and you know, our knowledge of the ketogenic diet went from just it, just from a macronutrient ratio. I mean, literally it was like Crisco, like the, the majority of fat would be Crisco, like hydrogenated fats and things. So our knowledge of the types of fats has dramatically increased over time. And we know that, you know, switching out some monounsaturated, switching out saturated with more monounsaturated and getting more of a balanced fatty acid profile can have pretty big effects and improving uh, lipid profile. So speaking to that, so the dietary fat, and then also looping it in with what you were talking about with, in a way, teaching our mitochondria to burn fat, is there a difference in, quote, teaching our mitochondria to burn fat in just from going low carb, so like not really adding fats, so them just burning endogenous fat compared to actually taking in fat? Does that like teach the mitochondria to burn fat faster? Yeah. So like adapting metabolically to burning fat. Well, when we restrict carbohydrates, then the process to make energy that's independent of the mitochondria is glycolysis. And there's a reduction in glycolysis and sugar metabolism for a number of reasons. One, you're just limiting glucose availability. So glycolysis goes down. And when you lower the hormone insulin, that hormone is really the driver of glycolysis. So so the metabolism of sugar, which is independent, which occurs in the cytosol, independent of the mitochondria, goes down. So the mitochondria are stressed and actually can, in the beginning, create some oxidative stress and the mitochondria need to adapt to make energy to compensate so that you get a little bit of an energetic crisis, which triggers a robust increase in mitochondrial function and also mitochondrial biogenesis. And we know that chronic calorie restriction can increase the number of mitochondria. We call that mitochondrial biogenesis. And then over time, the mitochondria become more efficient, which in regards to their energy production relative to their reactive oxygen species production. So when we burn energy, some of the exhaust of the energy, so to speak, is reactive oxygen species or oxygen-free radicals in the mitochondria. The, the, the primary one is superoxide. And then that can go to hydrogen peroxide and then more reactive intermediates like hydroxyl radical. And that can oxidize membrane lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids. But when we follow a ketogenic diet or calorie restriction, we first stimulate the mitochondria. It becomes a mitochondrial stress. And then, you know, maybe the word hormesis comes in here where it's a hormetic effect where there's an adaptation to the chronically low levels of glycolysis. And the adaptation produces more energy through something called oxidative phosphorylation, which is exclusively dependent upon the mitochondria. So under normal conditions like the skeletal muscle, I think derives about 80 to 90% of its ATP from the mitochondria. But like a cancer cell, for example, 
has defective mitochondrial function in regards to energy production. So we'll default back to sugar metabolism for energy, but also for biosynthetic processes. So like cancer cells may rely almost 80 to 90% off sugar metabolism independent of the mitochondria. And so this, there's, there's, you know, big, big differences in mitochondrial function and mitochondrial health, healthy mitochondria help to keep the energy status of the cell very high. And if you have chronic damage to the mitochondria, the nucleus senses that there's an energetic stress and that energetic and that, that energetic stress perceived by the nucleus could may also be associated with excess reactive oxygen species. And that could potentially kick on oncogenes and transform a normal cell to a cancer cell, like under certain conditions. For example, you know, if you drink alcohol at high concentrations and you're hammering your liver with alcohol, uh, a little bit of alcohol can have a hormetic effect and be very healthy, healthy and beneficial, but like chronic consumption of a toxin, can damage the mitochondria and the mitochondria senses an energetic crisis. And it's the damage from that that actually can kick on, can transform a normal cell into a cancer cell. And that cancer cell has a, a widely different metabolism relative to healthy cells. I just finished reading Dr. Stephen Gundry's new book called Cracking the Keto Code. And his thesis about keto and ketones and the mitochondria is that ketones are not a super fuel. They're not efficient. It's not about how they, quote, burn cleanly, that it's basically all about how they do part of what you were just talking about with stimulating the mitochondria to create more mitochondria. Like his whole thesis is about mitochondrial uncoupling. To what extent is the role of ketones in our mitochondria about encouraging the mitochondria to uncouple and create energy that way versus the ketones themselves being a fuel source? Well, we need to appreciate ketone bodies, but beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is a very good energetic fuel. So that's why in a, in a fasting state, ketones become the primary source of energy for the brain and and early work done in different model systems, for example, the working heart preparation work done by Dr. Richard Veach. He had trained under Hans Kreb and did a lot of work in cardiovascular system and on the energetic effects of ketone bodies. And when you metabolize ketones as an energy source in the mitochondria, it produces a favorable energetic profile relative to glucose biochemical terms, the delta G of ATP hydrolysis is, is higher for ketones relative to glucose. So in a working heart preparation, what that translates to is about a 25% increase in the hydraulic efficiency of the heart if you're burning ketones relative to glucose. So this is, I mean, this is well known. I don't know. He knows about that, but we know that this is well known in the heart. A little bit hard to do a working brain preparation. A working heart preparation is a little bit easier experimentally. I can tell you from, if you take ketones and give them to cells, you know, and then you remove glucose, normal healthy cells with good mitochondria can function in the absence of glucose, which is really remarkable, right? If you have cancer cells and you're growing cancer cells with glucose and ketones, and then you remove the glucose and leave the ketones, all the cancer cells die. So at least the brain cancer cell lines that have, that people look at. 
some cancer cells may be metabolically flexible to use ketones as an energy source or biosynthetic fuel. But as cancer becomes more aggressive, it sort of defaults to a more glycolytic phenotype and not only relies on glucose, it needs high levels of glucose to sustain life. You know, I, I, we believe, I think the field at large kind of believes that ketones are a superior energy source in many ways in regards to producing ATP with a less reactive oxygen species production. So that, that is pretty much well known, at least in the heart and in, and in other tissues too. But ketone bodies are also powerful signaling molecules that can change the activation and expression of different enzymes called histone deacetylase enzymes. So they can function through histone deacetylase inhibition, and that can actually activate genes and, and whole gene programs, which confer protection to cells. And it can actually upregulate endogenous antioxidant enzymes like superoxidismutase can be increased and catalase, which are enzymes that have endogenous antioxidant function. We also, a, a project in the lab that we're working on now that is a PhD dissertation project is actually looking at the direct effect of ketones on the histones, which are basically histones can prevent the activation of certain genes and through interaction of beta-hydroxybutyrate with the histone, it can actually activate different gene pathways. And we're actually looking at ketone bodies as epigenetic regulators for certain diseases, one of them being Kabuki syndrome. So yeah, ketones have a wide, there's a ketone receptor. The GPR109A receptor is a receptor for, for ketone bodies. Ketones have a plethora of different signaling effects that we're just starting to understand. The literature is pretty nascent on this. And as we understand more, pharmaceutical companies are becoming increasingly interested, especially in the ability of certain ketone bodies like beta-hydroxybutyrate to inhibit inflammatory pathways. There was a paper published in Nature Medicine showing that beta-hydroxybutyrate can suppress the NLRP3 uh, inflammasome. When that signal protein complex gets activated, that sets off a cytokine storm and an activation and elevation of things like IL-1 beta, TNF-alpha, and IL-6, and things like that. It's thought that the effects of fasting and the elevation of beta-hydroxybutyrate, it's that elevation of beta-hydroxybutyrate that contributes to much of the anti-inflammatory effects of fasting. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits, as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold content 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with a coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, I'm interviewing him on Monday and he basically tries to dismantle everything that you just said about ketones you know, their, their role actually as a fuel and their benefits. And he just focuses on the the signaling aspect of them and how that's really what's going on. So rather than it being additive, he makes it like, this is what's actually happening. So this, this is helpful. Well, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I'll have to, I'll have to look at his book, but I mean, we've known, for example, the early work by Dr. George Cahill from Harvard medical school, where they fasted subjects for an extended period of time, 40 days, and they injected them with insulin to rapidly lower blood glucose. And the subjects were asymptomatic for hypoglycemia because their ketone bodies were elevated in their blood. So if ketones were not functioning as a remarkable alternative energy substrates, substrate, all those subjects would have died. <laughs> so that you can't live if your glucose is one millimolar and you don't have, you know, ketones elevated, that you're, it's going to be universally fatal. So that was in 1967. It actually changed some of the medical textbooks. And because at, at that time, we thought that the brain was exclusively dependent upon glucose. 
And we knew that the levels of glucose largely remained relatively stable, even when you're fasting, like it drops down to like three millimolar, maybe dips a little bit here and there. But one way to basically dispose of glucose and not make it available to the brain is to do an insulin shock, which is in, in the case of the Cahill study, they injected 20 IUs of insulin, which rapidly caused what would be fatal hypoglycemia. But because ketones were elevated and sustained at like about four or five millimolar, the subjects were asymptomatic for hypoglycemia. And, and this is really, really important. And when I read that you know, I had to talk to him. I had to talk to Dr. Veach, and I realized that I would like to leverage <laughs> exogenous ketones as a way to bring people back from hypoglycemic shock. You know, and and that's it's kind of what what's happening too in diabetic ketoacidosis, and that's another thing that we could talk about. But the ketones do serve as a function to preserve. They're a warning sign, definitely. But yeah, but there's no doubt. I think every metabolic physiologist would agree that ketones are a very a remarkable alternative energy substrate. Lactate is too. I think lactate is kind of underappreciated. I agree. Sorry. <laughs> I'm fascinated by lactate. I was too. And actually lactate was the, f- before I focused on ketones, I focused on lactate because uh, <laughs> I was into mountain biking and I used a product called Cytomax and it had alpha L polylactate. And, you know, I became interested in lactate as a fuel. This is back in the early 90s, like 1991, 92. So it's kind of dating myself. But I was back, you know, in high school. I got into mountain biking and I would go to the library and look up lactate as a fuel. And then I became interested in administering exogenous lactate to protect the brain from hypoxia. If there was like stroke or brain injury or, you know, infants become hypoxic, you'd give them lactate. So that was like the original idea I became interested in. And then somehow I, and then I did some studies with lactate, but I eventually got steered into ketones because it interested me that ketones could get elevated into millimolar concentrations, lactate too, but you have to exercise really hard to bring that up. And that, that the lactate, ketones, and glucose are all super remarkable fuels for the brain. And if anybody argues against that, then they're just, they don't understand physiology. So it's interesting because one of the people he quotes, he quotes Owen and Cahill, one of their studies where they found that after a three-day fast, the muscles were using, switched to using free fatty acids instead of the ketones. And so the argument... Muscles, yes. Yep. Because you're sparing it for the brain. Okay, so that wouldn't really apply to the... Um... No, the, the, the ketones are for the brain, really. I think, you know, muscles are incredibly metabolically flexible. So, you know, you get into a state of ketosis and then your muscles will start using ketones. But it's like, we got we to gotta spare these ketones for the brain. The muscles are incredibly hungry for fatty acids too, for fat as fuel. But yeah, it's like that it's really, evolutionarily speaking... It's the ketones, real, their primary focus is to preserve the central nervous system and to make it so we are lucid, that we have brain energy so we can go forage for food and resources in the face of starvation. That's why we were able to live. Dr. Stephen Kunane wrote a great book on this. It's called Survival of the Fattest. Or fat. It's, it, he would be a great person to have on. He has a whole book on the evolution of fat as a fuel for human metabolism. I didn't actually read the article, but I saw it referenced in an article that I was reading. And it was saying that 
it's actually possible that the brain could fuel completely on ketones, but ethically we could never do studies to test that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't believe that's the case. I think glucose is so such a ubiquitous fuel and we have so many, the homeostatic mechanisms that our body has to maintain glucose levels are very, very robust. And that's why we can fast for 40 days and our glucose is still like two or three millimolar. And that's, that's a significant amount of energy in the blood. But yeah, so I would, I get asked that question a lot. Could, you know, the ketones be the hundred percent fuel. And I, I think there's certain organ systems too. I think maybe the kidneys and maybe, maybe there's, there's organs that probably need a certain percentage of fuel, red blood cells. They don't have mitochondria because it makes them a little bit small. If they had mitochondria, they'd be bigger and they wouldn't be able to get into the little, you know, tiny nooks and cranny blood vessels where they need to get to. So they leverage exclusively glycolysis for their energy systems. So if we went to zero glucose, I think it would be toxic to the body. And a good example of that, there are drugs that are trying to mimic the ketogenic diet and one is 2-deoxyglucose and that inhibits glycolysis and it becomes cardiotoxic if once you increase the dose. Unfortunately, the dose that becomes a very effective dose for controlling seizures and also for inhibiting cancer growth, it then it then you get to the the dose that becomes cardiotoxic. Although it, it's a useful tool, and I think at like 25 milligrams per kilogram or something like that, if I remember correctly, has a pretty profound effect. But then you start, when you're inhibiting glycolysis, you know, that's not a good thing to do. And also chronic ketosis inhibits a rate-limiting enzyme associated with glucose oxidation. That enzyme is pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So athletes, you know, that are chronically doing ketosis when they go and do sprinting exercises or anaerobic, you know, exercise, they could be somewhat limited. Their glycolytic systems are compromised because they're inhibiting, you know, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So it might be good to just, you know, I think to bring that enzyme system back and to keep glycolytic flux functioning, just keeping your, you know, just adding a little bit of carbs in, like I typically do 50 to 75 grams of carbs a day. Yesterday, I probably did 100. We went to a Mexican restaurant. But I think adding some carbs in here and there is probably good for the person who's just doing ketogenic diet as a lifestyle. What are your thoughts on, so that option, option A, the ketogenic diet as a lifestyle with slightly more carbs versus super low carb, but doing the, the cycling. So having like a carb up day. I think either option, it becomes very context dependent on what your goals are. The ketogenic diet really shines in the context of caloric deficit. I think that if you're on a ketogenic diet and trying to gain weight, like muscle, I guess, or gain muscle size, getting surplus amount of calories on a ketogenic diet is probably not very good because it's going to be fat and you're probably going to back up in the liver. But if you are seeking to reduce your to lose weight, to lose fat as fast as possible, and to retain your strength, I think there are advantages to a ketogenic diet for that context. And that becomes, I mean, it seems like what a lot of people want to do, right? It's like maybe they've gained some weight and they want to follow a dietary pattern. And that could be, yeah, ketosis during the week. And maybe I don't like the idea of just carving up, but I think to refeed carbohydrates with a calculated amount, like maybe keeping 50 grams of carbs Monday through Friday, 
but bumping it up to like 150 on the weekends or something like that, which I think I've done in the past, worked kind of well for me. So there's different ways to go about doing it, but it depends on your goals. And I also encourage people to to measure, do blood work, and figure out what makes them feel good, like, and then measure then. Like, I remember testing the ketogenic diet and I was like, man, today I feel really, really good. And then I will actually, you know, take measurements and it's like, okay, this is how I feel when my blood glucose is like this. And, you know, before I was wearing a CGM and I followed a real strict ketogenic diet and I just didn't feel well. I felt like a little bit of a headache and then my ketones were higher, like three or four. I was really strict. And I realized that I had to be less strict with the ketogenic diet and I was a little bit more liberal with the protein and even adding back in some carbohydrates, mostly in the form of fiber, like salads and some fibrous vegetables. And then I felt better, but my ketones level dropped to like one millimolar, which is really like the sweet spot for me where I think I'm getting the benefits of getting, you know, fiber in, which is probably good for your gut microbiome and gut health, but, but also, you know, adding more protein in, which I needed when I first started experimenting with the ketogenic diet, I, just, I had the book from Johns Hopkins. So I was doing the medical ketogenic diet to understand what it was all about. And then I migrated to the modified Atkins diet. And then I started just formulating my own personalized ketogenic diet based on my blood work and how I felt. Yeah, I have experienced that as well. So if I go very low carb and even add in lots of MCTs, I can get my blood ketones up really high. But I feel much better actually doing intermittent fasting with a pretty high carb intake at night. I feel really good with that. But speaking to all of that, I'm so excited you brought this all up. For people actually wanting to measure this, that you know, there's so many options. There's, well, there's not so many. There's <laughs> So we can check blood ketones, breath ketones with acetone, urinary ketones. Can we walk through the three ketone bodies? And I guess I should clarify, because I guess there's lots of different types of ketones, right? But ketone bodies would be the three that we'd be looking at acetoacetate, BHB, and acetone? Yeah, yep. And BHB is actually not a ketone. Oh, it's not? Is it a transporter mechanism? The physiologist, to a physiologist, yeah, it's a ketone body. and But the ketone is basically like a type of, of chemical bond between molecules. And there's ketones sort of everywhere throughout the body. But when we're talking about the ketogenic diet, yes, it's right. That's primarily beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and then acetone, which is a breakdown product of acetoacetate, it can spontaneously, what we call decarboxylate and lose a carbon and then be- becomes acetone. And acetone is volatile, which means that like when it's in solution, it gets into air, it goes into the gas phase. So it tends, we can blow it off in our breath. So traditionally, we in epilepsy world, urine ketone measurements were used, and then blood ketone monitoring systems became available. And and now I've been using a breath ketone device made by Biosense, or made by Readout Health rather. The company is Readout Health, and the and the the product is Biosense. I've had them on this show. Yeah, yeah, and I and there's. And I, I was skeptical, very skeptical, especially the first couple units didn't work or the batteries running down. But then, you know, I've used these things for years now and I feel breath acetone really correlates with your fat oxidation state and more so than beta hydroxybutyrate. Because if I'm sitting at my desk all day, like working and I'm fasting, 
and I've done three-day fasts and different versions of the ketogenic diet and things like that, my beta-hydroxybutyrate will be elevated, but then I start moving around and become active. And I, ha- I feel like I have very quick and robust tissue disposal of beta-hydroxybutyrate because you're using that as fuel. Acetone, not so much. So it tends to be a little bit more stable. And I noticed that I could taste acetone when I'm really in a deep state of ketosis. And I know my body is just pulling off its fat stores. And then that's registering very high on the Biosense device. But if I'm active and I'm in a calorie deficit, my tissues are sucking up the beta-hydroxybutyrate for fuel. So it's not really showing on the meter as much as it should. And what I have learned over the years, I see this in athletes like this. I just can't get into a state of ketosis, but their bodies are so hungry, especially if they're in a calorie deficit, that the ketones are being sucked up into tissues (laughs) and used as fuel. And especially if you're in a resting state, you know, that's when your ketones are elevated. But if you're moving around and your metabolism is fast, there tends to be this disconnect over time as you, and then Peter Atia, I think also reported this and we had an email kind of going back and forth and we're like almost identical in the way our response is like, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate will start to come up and it'll be like one millimolar and that'll correlate to three or that'll correlate to 10 ACEs or ACs. It'll, the reading on the biosense meter will be 10 and that will correlate to one millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate on the blood meter. But as you prolong your fast, or if you're in a calorie deficit, the acetone, my acetone levels went to, it maxed out the meter to 40. And it just, it literally couldn't go any higher. And then my blood ketone levels were like, the highest they got during like a three-day fast were like 2.2, 2.5. I think a couple of times they bumped up, you know, because it fluctuates to like three or four. But largely, I mean, they stayed, you know, they were there wasn't a tight correlation between beta-hydroxybutyrate and breath acetone. And that's my interpretation. And it might be more complex, but my simple interpretation is that my body was using the ketones for fuel because I could quickly lower beta-hydroxybutyrate with just some some, you know, mild activity. I can see it drop down. I could be at my desk and I measure it and I'm like three. And then I take a brisk walk just around the house and I'm back down to one with a brisk walk. Whereas my acetone levels will stay elevated, which makes sense because you're, you're burning more fat. I also like the, the biosense device because I've literally taken thousands of measurements on it. And that would have been thousands of strips, which would have been multiple thousands of dollars. So yeah, I've done many experiments and you can puff into this thing, you know, many, many times throughout the day. And then it goes into the app, which is a great, the app is fantastic that they have for that device. And it just becomes more cost effective because your ketones fluctuate dramatically. So you really need to measure like three to five times a day, three minimum, five times a day to really get an overall picture of what's happening during the day in regards to ketosis. And that that would be expensive and even painful if you're pricking your finger all the time, which I do anyway. But I think for people that just want a ketone monitoring system to as an index of their fat burning state, and if they're I'll put it this way. You can't have elevated breath ketones and not be in a high state of fat burning. So I think it's it's reassuring to me to see that and rewarding, I guess is the word, to see that breath ketone so high because the carbons from that acetone are really 
we're in the fat <laughs> in your body. Acetone that you're blowing off is completely a result of fat from, from your body or, or from your, if you're fasting or from dietary fat if you're eating. So what's actually happening, the acetone you said is coming from the acetoacetate in the bloodstream? Yeah, in circulation, beta-hydroxybutyrate is reduced and, and more stable in circulation, whereas acetoacetate, and we have to figure, you know, figure out resourceful ways to measure this because it can be kind of tricky, and, and acetone is also very tricky to measure in the blood, but we've done it and we've published on it. So you, you, your body's producing beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate in about a four to one or a three to one ratio. And that acetoacetate in circulation will spontaneously decarboxylate to acetone. And this is pretty, it's pretty similar in, in, in everybody. Like I think most people have, I, I think physiology is, is metabolic physiology is in regards to this is pretty similar in most people. Although I've come across some people who just, they don't, they can't get anything on the meter and they claim that they're in ketosis. That was going to be my question. Like, does the environment, the thing that makes me not nervous, but it's like, if it's random, then isn't it sort of random? Like what causes it to create acetone? So yeah, I guess the word spontaneous. So it's spontaneously decarboxylating, but it occurs at a very stable rate all the time. And there's a couple calculate, a couple papers that look into this. So the the best estimate is about twenty percent. Twenty percent of the acetoacetate in in circulation will spontaneously decarboxylate to acetone, and then it makes its way to the lungs, which is a huge surface area. So we can pick it up in our breath in a fairly high concentration, you know, parts per million, it's, it's, it's pretty high. So it becomes a very reliable, you know, means to, to monitor ketosis and breath acetone not only correlates very high with fat oxidation. I became very interested in, in, in acetone and we started measuring in the blood, although it's a, it's a tricky protocol to really get it reliably. But I, saw, I became very interested in breath acetone because acetone correlated with seizure control. And it seemed there was a lot of arguments about saying ketones don't correlate with seizure control, but the data with acetone seemed pretty strong, stronger than the other ketone bodies. So I, I became very interested in acetone as a means to, as a correlation for anti-seizure effects. So actually, that that led us to developing ketone esters that elevated beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. So the one ketone ester that I've put a lot of time and effort into is 1,3-butanediol acetoacetate diester. So I know that's a real long name, but when you ingest it, it produces a one-to-one -one ratio of beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate in the blood. And then that acetoacetate spontaneously decarboxylates to acetone. And then we get a, a blood measurement of acetone about one millimolar. And, you know, if ketones get, get up to like five millimolar. And then that, in that state, that's incredibly anti-seizure and neuroprotective in that state, at least in the model of oxygen toxicity. And then we tested a couple other models too. So it was important for us, I guess the message was, it was important for us to not only elevate beta-hydroxybutyrate, but to also elevate acetoacetate to get the anti-seizure effects because it seemed to correlate very well with, with acetone.
So is the acetone in that case completely correlational or is it actually having any of the beneficial effects itself? Well, it's generally thought in the field that acetone is like a byproduct and we just blow it out and it doesn't really have a physiological effect. But there's papers showing that acetone can be incorporated to go back into like acetyl-CoA and go into other biosynthetic processes. And I'm of the opinion that acetone affects many different things and probably probably the gating function of certain ion channels, which play a role in excitability of cells like neurons. So yeah, like in particular, maybe a potassium channel. So, so I've been kind of interested in this and I don't, I've got certain theories that are more speculation, but acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate are fantastic fuels and they also have some in- interesting signaling effects. And acetone was always this like thought of as this byproduct that we just blow off. But I'm of the opinion because of its high correlation with anti-seizure effects, which is also could just point back to acetoacetate. I think it has some biological function that's important for the things that we're studying. And I'm trying to figure out, figure that out. And uh, well, there are studies showing that if you inject just small amounts of acetone, it has anti-seizure effects. So there's, there's a direct you know, effect. Like acetone, when it gets real high, it'll start to produce like a narcotic effect. But when you're on a ketogenic diet, you have sub-narcotic levels of acetone and there's still a strong anti-seizure effect. So you were saying earlier how some people just don't seem to ever register the, the acetone as much. Could they have high acetoacetate but not have high acetone? And then in that situation, do you think they might not see the beneficial effects if they had seizures? That's a lot of hypotheticals. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it would be, well, the, the way to, to really answer this is to do metabolomics. And I think, you know, we do have some metabolomics data. We're sitting on some some blood data now. I didn't, got a lot of data and didn't, didn't know how to make sense of it. But bioinformatics processing is, is improving. But I do, in some ways, I think, you know, we are a unique metabolic entity and we may have different metabolic response to the same ketogenic diet. And I think it's going to be important to personalize low carb diets and ketogenic diets to not only our lifestyle, but to our genetics. And we're not there yet, but I think different tools and technologies are emerging that will allow us to adjust our nutrition, which is the most important thing for our health. I I think, you know, I I teach to the medical students and it's unfortunate that nutrition is not part of the medical curriculum per se, although we do have a course, scholarly concentration nutrition, where we kind of get into the importance of nutrition, like for, for health, for lifestyle. It's like the biggest, I mean, we kind of all agree it's one of the most important things to keep people off drugs and out of the clinic. Right. And, the immense burden on our healthcare system is due to poor nutrition or overnutrition. So I think it's going to be important to understand the utility of ketogenic diets and the utility of just, you know, low carb diets and, and to have tools to be able to personalize that. So the national institutes of health, they fund a lot of the, you know, they fund nutrition research and their big focus, the federal government focus, they've actually are steering more money towards nutrition, but with a focus on personalizing nutrition has been like the big thrust. And we'll see where that goes. I think, I think it's a good thing to focus on, but I, I do think they should focus more on low carb diets and looking at the utility of low carb diets and directing more funding towards that. 
Well, speaking to that, so the role of diet versus exogenous ketones versus pharmaceuticals and things like that, does the body know at all? So if if they're like the ketones, does it know if they came from what you ate versus from exogenous ketones? And does it matter? Or is it literally just once it's there, it's there? Well, good question. I was extremely skeptical about this idea of just like drinking ketones and then getting getting benefits. But I did study with immense enthusiasm <laughs> the, the the ketone ester literature, which was, you know, Dr. Richard Veach and Dr. Andre Bruningrabber and a few others, Dr. Theodore Van Italy, uh, George Cahill. You know, these were all just like, icons in metabolic physiology. There's not like a whole, there's not like really iconic metabolic physiologists now. They're more like biochemists, but you really need to understand physiology to understand like the role of ketones in metabolism. I think that, and and your question is a good one in regards to, is it all just about the ketones? There are certain things that happen when we're fasting and go into ketosis, there are certain things that happen with a eucaloric ketogenic diet as a means to produce ketosis. And then there are definitely things that happen when you ingest exogenous ketones, whether it be ketone esters. And a lot of my research now is going towards ketone electrolyte salts. So having an electrolyte array that's beneficial to the body and those electrolytes are bound to ketones. So we're really formulating things now and the ketone salts. And there's overlapping things, but it's also distinct, right? So when you're fasting, you're in a calorie deficit and that produces a caloric restriction effect. But interestingly, the ketogenic diet suppresses insulin and IGF-1 and some pathways that mimic caloric restriction. And then you have exogenous ketones, which interestingly lower blood glucose ketone esters in high concentrations will will actually increase insulin. So I am of the opinion that that's probably not a good thing unless, you know, medically the rise in insulin is pretty small, but, and you need a ketone ester at a large dose. I try to double dose ketone salts and I don't, I see only a little blip in my blood insulin. So. And what are salts versus esters just for listeners that are not familiar? Yeah, sure. So you can make a ketone ester by taking ketone bodies and then binding them to a molecule with an ester bond. Typically, there are a couple. One is uh, 1,3-butanediol, which is a molecule in and of itself. It converts to ketones. But you can take 1,3-butanediol and then do a trans-esterification. And then you can bind beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, either one to 1,3-butanediol. And when you ingest that, it gets broken down in the gut and the liver and it releases the ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. And then the 1,3-butanediol gets metabolized in the liver to beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that's, that's a ketone ester. You can also take glycerol and add acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate to glycerol. So, and that'll produce a mild acidosis and actually it's able to get your ketones elevated higher. It's almost like a dose dependent effect. And then a ketone salt is actually, we're taking an electrolyte like sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. So these are electrolytes and these will ionically bond to the ketones, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate. 
you can bind them to acetoacetate, but it's less stable. So they're not, they're not very common. So you can have a sodium beta-hydroxybutyrate salt. You could have a potassium beta-hydroxybutyrate salt, calcium, or a magnesium beta-hydroxybutyrate salt. And then you can put these in certain ratios. The formulation that we use is similar to the electrolyte formulation of the product element, which Rob Wolf has. Okay. So like, I love that. I've had him on three times. Yeah. It's like one of the first things I drink when I get up and, and maybe this is to his credit. Like we found that that electrolyte ratio is actually the most tolerable in that specific ratio. So we bind the beta hydroxybutyrate to the electrolytes in, in that ratio. And then there it's pretty tolerable and you can get levels up into like the one millimolar and even two millimolar range. And I think that's ideal. I, you know, I have access to all different types of ketones and I can elevate mine up to like 10 millimolar, but I feel sick. Like I don't feel well once I get up to three or four or five millimolar, but I do feel enhanced and optimized. So it's all about biohacking, right? I do feel that I'm like truly biohacking just by bumping my ketone levels up to about one to 1.5 with like a ketone salt. And you're also delivering electrolytes, which are probably a little bit deficient if you're low carb anyway, because you tend to excrete more electrolytes if you're on a ketogenic diet or low carb. So that's, that's my typical regimen. I take a couple servings of ketone salts per day and basically to deliver electrolytes and ketones at key times during the day. After this podcast, I might go work out and I'll just have usually like a half a packet of ketone salts and I'll mix some creatine in with that. And I do think there's some supplements too that are important with the ketogenic diet because we see it come up in blood work like carnitine. So I'll usually put some carnitine, acetyl L-carnitine in with, with the mix and drink that. And that's a good zero sugar pre-workout, actually, especially with a little bit of caffeine. Could a person become ketone resistant, like they become insulin resistant, like the equivalent of having too much blood sugar all the time, having too much ketones all the time? I would say no. I think the if you have robust mitochondrial health and metabolic activity, your body is going to be hungry for ketones. What we see in sedentary people, if you do, I like to call it a ketone tolerance test. If you take people who just don't exercise much, like couch potato people, and you you have them ingest ketones, the ketones get elevated and they stay elevated in the blood a lot longer than someone who's an athlete especially if you ingest the ketones and then get on a bike and ride or you do some kind of physical activity, those ketones get cleared very fast in elite level athletes. So it's just indicative of high ketone disposal into the tissues. Whereas a sedentary person would did not transport it as fast. And that could be due, you know, the ketone transporter is a monocarboxylic acid transporter, which may be upregulated in athletes if they're making lactate because it also co-transports lactate. So yeah, we probably have much more robust ketone transport systems and ketolytic enzymes in people who are more metabolically flexible and adapted to ketogenic diets. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. 
I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So that actually speaks to, because a lot of my listeners on the intermittent fasting podcast feel like they have to chase ketones. Like they really want high ketone levels. And we were talking before this about how I was listening to Rhonda Patrick on Joe Rogan, and she was talking about doing keto and really needing to keep eating fat to keep her ketone levels up. So is that something people need to be, need to be doing? Yeah. Rhonda and I had that conversation. I'll be meeting with her next week and doing a, some podcasts with her. Yeah, you do. A lot of people are chasing ketones and I don't, and you know, unless you're using it to manage a chronic disorder or something, I'm not of the opinion that everybody should be in a state of chronic ketosis. But say you're going to like pull the ketogenic <laughs> trigger and do one one week out of a month of ketosis or a modified fasting diet or fasting mimicking diet, you know, if uh, Walter Longo. And it, it is it is very remarkable in the data. It kind of supports that if you do that for one week out of a month, then you have this like extended benefits over a couple weeks. So theoretically, yeah, you can kind of follow, I wouldn't follow any diet, but you can follow a more lax diet and then periodically go into ketosis. And, you know, I, I tend to do a modified version of a ketogenic diet just because I feel I have higher productivity, higher, more stable energy levels. And I think there's a lot of health benefits. I, I incorporate a level of carbohydrates that would typically maybe put most people out of ketosis, like between 100 to 75 grams per day, but the carbs are usually higher in fiber. But then I supplement ketones, you know, periodically throughout the day, just in a drink of ketone salts, similar to the electrolytes you get from Element or something like that. So I, I think of the salts as having two important functions of restoring electrolytes and just delivering a high energy source of fuel at the same time. And do you think people have any sort of metabolic memory? Like if they've done a ketogenic diet once, is it easier to do it again? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. That's an important point. And I think just like muscle memory, when you build up and get to a certain strength or conditioning cardiovascular and you take time off, you can get back to that point, you know, like two or three times faster. And I think the same holds true if we train our metabolism to be a strong fat burner or ketone producer and we take time off. I know anecdotally, we would hear people, they would get into ketosis much faster. I know I do if I take time off, which I usually don't. But in, in animal models, we see this too. So if you put animals on a ketogenic diet and then take them off and then 
put them back back on again, the levels of ketone ketones will be elevated quite faster, a lot faster. So so it's it seems that doing ketosis for a period of time makes the body more metabolically flexible when you revisit that again. And you'll talk with to people who diet down for, you know, a contest or to make weight for a certain sport. And the first time they do it is kind of hard. And the more they do it, and there could be a learning curve thing to this too, but I'm of the opinion that, you know, the more you do a ketogenic diet and the more you do low carb and train your body to burn fat, the easier it gets. And probably the more benefits you derive from it too, if you don't take it to extremes. Speaking of the the animals, I just finished reading The Forever Dog, Dr. Karen Becker. She's going to come on the show, but she talks in her book about the cancer retreat for dogs, where they do a lot of studies with dogs and cancer and ketogenic diets. Yeah, I have that book. My wife is reading the book now. And they have uh, an amazing free ebook that you can just download, and it tells you step-by-step on how to make the ideal food, you know, low-carb ketogenic food for your dogs. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of of Karen Becker and the Keto Pet Sanctuary and and what they've done to really promote low-carb nutrition for for dogs, especially dogs that have cancer, right? So we know that it's a very powerful adjuvant, you know, when you add it to therapy and it could be a way to manage cancer and reduce tumors, eliminate them altogether, you know, occasionally, you know, there's when I got into studying the ketogenic diet for cancer, there wasn't too many people. Thomas Seyfried was doing it. Dr. Adrian Sheck was doing it. And there's a few clinical trials, pediatric patients. But now if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and just type in ketogenic diet and cancer, you get dozens of studies. And, you know, a new animal model study showed that there's checkpoint inhibitors, one's uh, PD-1, and showed that the ketogenic diet can enhance sort of the the effects of some of these immune-based drugs too, which is a whole new direction that I didn't think about toward, until more recently. Yeah, a lot of potential for ketogenic diets in veterinary medicine and, and, you know, and expanding application for different types of cancer too. Are there some cancers that are likely to be exacerbated by a ketogenic diet? Like they say, like the tumors that fuel on ketones. There's no doubt that there's probably some cancers that would not be responsive. But when I think about a ketogenic diet, I don't think about, you know, starving the cancer of glucose or (laughs) elevating ketones as an. So when I think about a ketogenic diet for cancer management or as an adjuvant, I think about it as suppressing the hormone insulin, mTOR, PI3 kinase pathway. So I think of it as a way to change metabolic hormones that would marginalize and restrict tumor growth. And then by you know limiting glucose availability, suppressing the hormone insulin and insulin-related signaling, and elevating ketones too, because they have, I think they do have some anti-cancer effects that can put you know, put the brakes or at least let the foot off the gas pedal of cancer growth. And then the cancer becomes more vulnerable to other modalities that can kill cancer cells. And that could be chemo and radiation or immune-based therapies like these PD-1 inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors, you know, is a new area. And also the PI3 kinase inhibitor drugs. Uh, Dr. Luke Cantley has been researching drugs that target cancer metabolism, including PI3 kinase 
inhibitors. And when we take these drugs, they tend to have a counter-regulatory effect and they increase insulin. Unfortunately, that was one of the side effects. But they these drugs work not so great in and of themselves, but when they're coupled and combined with a ketogenic diet, the ketogenic diet suppresses the hormone insulin and actually unleashes the therapeutic potential of PI3 kinase inhibitors. So there's some evidence for that and 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 that could be a new direction. So I, I, I view the ketogenic diet as a foundational sort of dietary approach that can be used for a wide variety of cancers. And my original interest was to just use it for brain cancers because people with brain tumors have seizures. So it made sense. And I knew I communicated with patients that had a lot of side effects with anti-epileptic drugs. So, and then as I started researching this topic, I stumbled a, upon papers by Thomas Seyfried and Adrian Sheck, and they would be great people to have on your podcast that showed that they had these ketogenic diets had remarkable anti-cancer effects. And then that actually set off my enthusiasm for researching this. And then I had PhD student come along, Dr. Angela Poff, and she was like, I want to do my PhD dissertation on this. So, so the more research we did looking at ketogenic diets, ketone supplementation, and also hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which seems to synergize with the ketogenic diet, we saw remarkable effects in our model system. So it's still, we do quite a bit of research that we currently do is focused on cancer. So I have an idea for how pharmaceutical companies could turn this into a drug, sort of, sort of. Well, definitely for keto from fasting, maybe keto from diet. They could make a pill and instead of all of the reasoning going into the actual makeups of the pill, it would all go into the instructions. So for example, you have to take this pill on an empty stomach with a certain eating window. It actually would be prescribing fasting. Or it could be like for the diet, they could say that you have to have this pill with this certain type of diet. Yeah. So the exogenous ketones produce many of the the effects of you know ketogenic diets. So they lower blood glucose remarkably low. So work done by Thomas Seyfried has have looked at the glucose ketone index. And if we look at all the different cancer studies that have been done in animal models and humans, the most beneficial effects seem to be achieved when you get the lowest glucose ketone index, right? So what that translates to is the lower the glucose and the higher the ketones, the better the therapeutic effect that diet intervention had at restricting, eliminating cancer, so cancer growth. So yeah, and a pill would do that. We know that when you ingest a ketone ester or ketone salts, that you're lowering glucose and elevating ketones. And with the ketone salts, if the total rise in ketones are not above two millimolar, then you're not increasing insulin. And I think that's going to be important too when we deliver. And then there may be drugs that could just stimulate fat oxidation and ketone production in the liver. And there, there's a couple of drugs that may do that, but the drugs maybe have side effects. So I think that work needs to be done. But I do think I, I've actually, I'm not going to name the pharmaceutical companies, but I've traveled and went to a variety of different pharmaceutical companies, like the more popular ones. And they, they want, me to give a, a summary of the ketogenic diet on all the mechanisms so they can kind of make a ketogenic diet in a pill. And it's hard to do that 
because, you know, the summary slide is showing a dozen different mechanisms potentially working in synergy to produce the effects we see in the clinical endpoints, right? Which is like lowering blood glucose, reducing inflammation, having anti-seizure effects. It's doing it through a variety of mechanisms. So it's going to be hard to make a drug that does that. I was thinking the pill could actually be a placebo. So the instructions for taking the pill, it would make the people fast. So they would think the pill was a pill, but actually it was just placebo and it would make them fast every day. And then that could be the treatment. So the pill then would be like an appetite suppressant. That doesn't have to be anything in the pill. It would just be like, like it has to be taken on empty stomach. It can't be taken within four hours of food either. Like take in the morning on an empty stomach and then wait like four hours to eat. So then you're forcing people into a 16 hour fast. That's, that's a good idea. It's really good idea. Yeah. They don't figure it out. But yeah, there's, I mean, there are remarkable effects to placebos. We were just discussing this in one of my classes that, you know, the placebo pill. Yeah. And I also believe just in following people over the years, you know, that if the the person implementing the approach truly, truly believes that it's helping them, then it's more likely to help them. You know, and, and I don't, I, I think there's like neuropsychoimmunology and, you know, I know our brains can change our physiology and many, many hormone systems and things like that. So I, I do believe there's a major effect belief in whatever you're doing. You know, if you believe that it's beneficial and having a therapeutic effect, it's more likely to work. I've just seen it in enough patients that I've communicated with that that's the case. And I think it goes above and beyond the science of what I know it should do. Like I've seen, I've seen cancers kind of go into remission and like doctors saying, wow, this diet seems to be working. In pretty much all cases, the patient was like completely convinced that it was going to, going to help them. So just through the communications and, you know, I guess there's some where they believed it and it didn't help or, but it just seems like the feedback that I'm getting like over the years that when patients really implement it and follow through and they believe it, then just like you just get these remarkable effects, therapeutic effects. Yeah. I just interviewed Shimani Jane. I think she wrote a book called healing ourselves and it was all, all about this, like the biofield science and the placebo effect and, she talks about studies looking at all of that and people's belief definitely plays a huge role. It does need to be studied too. And also when we get on a ketogenic diet or low carb or dietary intervention, ideally low carb, it's changing our psychology. So there's a whole field emerging called metabolic psychiatry. And Dr. Christopher Palmer from Harvard was a speaker at the Metabolic Health Summit. And, and we also have a number of speakers and we're going to really increase this theme at the metabolic health summit, which is like bringing together clinicians, basic science researchers and companies too, that support this kind of field. This, this idea that, you know, there's not too many, the toolboxes are not very good for things like bipolar disorder and depression, anxiety and things like that. And dietary interventions have very profound effects and they could be used as an adjuvant or maybe even in some cases a standalone intervention for some people. So there's a lot of really cutting edge, re- edge research going on right now for psychiatric conditions and using this dietary approach for that. What do you think is the biggest barrier to like there actually being a paradigm shift where conventional medicine is you know, using these therapeutic dietary approaches more? 
Like, do you think it's possible? Yeah, the big the big hurdle is implementation is hard. Uh, most, you know, doctors don't have a nutrition team. They don't have registered dietitians at their fingertip that can put patients on a ketogenic diet and make them comply. And we don't know if they are complying. You know, you send them home with a diet, diet instructions, a pamphlet, or you even have them go through a workshop to understand the diet. But that's where I actually think continuous glucose monitors or Abbott came out with a lingo device or lingo that measures glucose, ketones, lactate, and alcohol. Oh, really? <laughs> I want that. Levels needs to make access to that. Yeah. The Consumer Electronics Conference, the keynote was on that by the, the CEO of Apple or CEO of, uh, of Abbott rather. Yeah, putting putting these monitoring devices on patients, sending them home so the data just goes to a cloud and actually you can just look and see if they're following the diet or not. Yeah, it's going to be super important. It's going to be a game changer, I think. And then for them to have an app like, you know, the Levels Health app, I use that where they can just press a button and have access to a nutritionist. And they and they can see the effect of a particular diet or amount of food on their glycemic response, and they say, "Okay, well, I shouldn't do that, or I'll eat another, I'll eat another meal instead of that." And they learn; it becomes very rewarding to them. They gamify the whole process, and then it inspires them because they have more control over their condition. So, I think these biowearables and these emerging technologies, where there's multi-analyte sensors are going to be game changers for managing disorder, managing people with epilepsy or you know type 2 diabetes and and other disorders where the ketogenic diet is a therapy it's going to be super important to monitor them to make sure they're complying but also to optimize the approach to say oh you might add a little bit of fat or your ketones are actually too high maybe you can add a little bit more protein to have that data is going to be really important well, I am very excited. And wow, thank you. This has been so, so amazing. And for listeners, we even had to figure out for like half an hour before this, we were having technical difficulties. So th thank you so much for your time. I, I cannot thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for your work and all that you're doing. It's just really, really profound and life-changing. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Any resources you want to put out there for listeners? Anything else on your mind? No. Well, I want to thank you for giving me this platform to speak and thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. It's people like you that are getting the information out there and people are hearing it. And because, you know, I do these podcasts and so many people, you know, re respond back to me saying, oh, I heard you on this and I started, I started doing this. And yeah, it's really made a difference. So thank you for that. If people want to find out more about what I do, I have an informational website called ketonutrition.org ketonutrition.org. People always ask me about, you know, what ketone supplement should I take and this and that. The one that I personally use is by Audacious Nutrition. It's called Keto Start, and it's just an electrolyte formulation that's bound to ketones. So I like that. And yeah, I'm a big advocate of using continuous glucose monitoring devices. And and I think people could just, you know, sign up and just use it for four weeks. And then that will give them like a ton of information. Like I, I wear mine all the time because I'm always testing things, but I'm a, a big advocate for that. And oh, one last thing, because I get a lot of questions about diabetic ketoacidosis. Diabetic ketoacidosis will not occur if you have, if you're not type one diabetic. So diabetic ketoacidosis occurs in the absence of insulin. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's usually 
I get a lot of hands when I give talks at conferences and people are like, well, what about diabetic ketoacidosis? So that becomes only a problem in the context of type 1 diabetes. But at the same time, the ketogenic diet is actually being used as a therapy now for type 1 diabetes. And you can look that up. There's like literature and studies going on. And even a group that's advocating low-carb diets for type 1 diabetes, this group is on a Facebook group that goes by the name of Type 1 Grit. So my student or former PhD student, Dr. Andrew Kutnick, was a member of that and kind of networked to that community. But it's kind of funny because when I used to give talks on ketogenic diets, I would say, first and foremost, if you're type 1 diabetic, don't even think about you know this approach. But now low-carb diets and ketogenic diets are being used to manage type 1 diabetes to reduce the amount of insulin that they need to manage their glucose within tight ranges. So yeah, the field is changing a lot and I never thought that would happen, but we do have publications now supporting the use of these diets in the type 1 diabetes community. Very exciting. So for listeners, again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash Dom Diagostino. There'll be a transcript there and I'll put links to everything we touched on. I'll put links to my interviews with Levels and Biosense and Element and Aura and Walter Longo and all of that for people who want to learn more. I promise this is the very last question. I ask every single guest on the show this question to end it. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, man, so many things. Yeah, we had this discussion last night with friends. You know, I like to, I do a gratitude practice every day, and I like to focus on something like very, very specific every day. And that gives me appreciation. So I'm just super, there's many different things, but the health of my parents. So my parents are getting up in age and they'll be visiting very soon. So I'm super excited about that because I haven't been able to see them with COVID and other other issues. But yeah, I'm just really grateful for the health of my family and my friends who who also support the re, the work that we do too. So I just, I'm just trying to pick, you know, one thing, but as soon as I get off on this podcast, my wife is cooking dinner and I smell it now. So I'm super <laughs> grateful for the meal that she's cooking me right now and super grateful to enjoy the ketogenic meal. I presume. Well, she doesn't eat ketogenic, but dinner is usually pretty ketogenic. But I'm, I'm super grateful for the smell I'm smelling now and the meal that we're about to have together. So, and the walk that we do with our dogs after the meal each night. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dom. This has been amazing. I so, so appreciate it. I will eagerly continue to follow all of your work. And this has just been amazing. So, hopefully, we can talk again in the future. And just thank you. I cannot thank you enough. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, Melanie. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.